0: okay gang just a heads up this week's episode has some rather uh explicit language in it so if you got kids in the car or are not down for hearing that sort of thing uh i would turn it off now Uh, otherwise uh enjoy this episode
1: he forcefully you know with the gun again he said bitch like give me your shit or i'm gonna kill you
0: Listen up, gang. If you've not heard of Big Tech's ordinance on the internet, you've got to check it out. Ike and his team are wildly popular in the shooting and self-defense community because they are committed to providing the greatest selection of top-shelf gear at a fair price, supported by knowledgeable staff, and undisputedly the best customer service in the industry. Please thank them for their support of this Active Cell Protection Podcast by considering them for any of your gear needs and let them prove to you why they have an almost fanatical fan base of their own. Please visit BigTextOrdnance.com BigTextOrdnance.com and let them know the Ask Podcast sent you. All right, folks. Welcome back to the Active Cell Protection Podcast. I am your host, Mike Williver, your favorite former Fed with us today simone park simone is a management consultant with the attorneys for freedom law firm and dear to my heart a stand-up comedian simone how are you
1: i'm great how are you
0: i'm doing well thanks so much for being in here you have a really compelling story uh that i'm sure our audience uh, cannot wait to hear first i want to remind our audience to stay tuned after this interview for our sit down with steve gutowski of the reload.com that's always a good time always very informative so simone um before we get into your defensive encounter and your incident, let's talk for a minute about, uh, your, your background. It's really, really interesting. I think you are, uh, born in Canada, but, and then it gets confusing. So walk walk us through Mm -hmm. being born in Canada, ending up in Hawaii as a, as a visa holder.
1: So please don't hold it against me. I was born in Toronto, Canada. Um, (laughs) I did manage to have a wonderful job and a wonderful life where I, managed to live and travel extensively. I've probably been to about 50 countries. I mean, a lady never tells her number. Mm -hmm. Um, I've lived in 10 countries so far, so I've had a good, you know, view of the world we would live in. And, um, yeah, I was actually, I've been avoiding Canadian winter for seven years. I would say I'm a baby snowbird, if you will. And in 2020, I decided to try Hawaii. They were having their first ever Aloha Comedy Festival. So I said, yeah, I'll go do that. And lo and behold, March 2020 um, happened. And I was deciding, you know, everyone in Canada was like, come home. We don't know what's happening. You're not going to have health care for much longer, you know, fear tactics. But you know, to me, I was like, going to Canada in March is quite literally the worst possible thing I could do. And I made a choice that the big island of Hawaii, which is a very large island, hence the name. Um, I kind of did some research and I figured whatever this coronavirus, whatever, whatever it was, because back then we still didn't know. Um, I determined that the big island of Hawaii would be actually the safest place in the world that I could be given this crazy thing that was going on. So I moved to the middle of nowhere um, to an area I had never been. And I found a place on two acres. The owner was actually stuck in California So, yeah, I didn't have much furniture. Uh, The landlord only accepted Bitcoin. It was just the whole situation was highly unusual and, you know, not seeing people. I was extremely isolated. I didn't have a car. I wasn't able to really go anywhere or do anything. So I just finally had to go within and um, do a lot of kind of trauma healing and a lot of work. And I came across some notes. I had I had been consulting for a company which led me to Colombia and Argentina and um we did this workshop I think it was in Colombia where we had to write down our ideal like a day in Simone's ideal life hmm. from what we heard what we smelled what we ate like just everything from every sense like the five senses that we had and I realized it was my life in Hawaii what i what i was eating what i was hearing what i was looking at so i decided you know usually we wait until freedom 55 which is now freedom 68 or whatever retirement age is and with given the fact that we were going through this pandemic i said i don't know how long we have and i'm not going to wait for another few decades to make this happen so i you know i went back to canada my my tourist visa was expiring and I made it back to Canada with one hour left on my tourist visa. And I found a job. I got a work visa. I just made everything happen. And within seven weeks I had moved back um, with a job and officially being a legal alien allowed to work.
0: Well, if you're going to miss Canada winter, I mean, Hawaii is not a bad place to miss it. You know, if you're going to pick a place in the United States, you could do a lot worse uh, than, than the big <laughs> island. So tell us this. You grew up in Canada, and I, I know there's a very different culture around guns and self-defense in Canada than there is in the United States, actually anywhere versus the United States, really. But did you grow up with any exposure to firearms, shooting, shooting sports, uh, military cops, anything like that?
1: Not in the slightest. Okay. We had one shooting at our high school, so I kind of went, you know, grew up in, a, in the ghetto um and so there was a shooting at our school where they just kind of you know popped one in in the air um but that was the extent cuz we don't even have a large military presence either so i didn't know any hunters i think that's more prevalent in the west coast like alberta sure. uh, british columbia maybe in the midlands um but in in ontario toronto certainly was not a thing
0: i can imagine i did i wasn't toronto in high school, our, our high school band took a trip up there. And it was delightful. I thought it was just delightful. Uh, <laughs> Toronto and, and Montreal. And, you know, when they say Canadians are polite, they're not kidding. Uh, Canadians will apologize <laughs> for apologizing. They're just very nice people. Um yes. And, you know, as, as I refer to Canada as America's hat. And I mean that in the, only the most loving way possible. So Aww. at some point um, in your life, you had a pretty traumatic incident. And I don't know if the audience knows this, but I always tell my guests when I do the pre-interview that I don't want to know anything about this incident ahead of time. I want to be learning about it at the same time our listeners are. So I don't know what happened to you, but I have it under your mm. authority that you had a pretty bad experience. And I appreciate you being willing to come on and discuss it. And then we're going to go into a little bit more depth about what happened after that, which I think is the more important part. So... Walk us through what happened to you.
1: Um, So this was right around Thanksgiving 2015. I was in Long Beach, California. And I was volunteering with uh, a nonprofit there. And just walking down the street, um, a man, he pulled my hair until I was on my knees And he stuck a gun in my face. Um, Had no idea what was going on. But now I'm on the sidewalk. Man, I don't know. I'm on my knees. There's a gun in my face. I'm petrified. I've never seen a gun. Certainly never had one pointed in my face. Um, And instinctively, I, I started to throw him off guard. So I've had a lot of time to think about this since, but I started to um, kind of plead with him. I was saying, you don't have to do this. And I kept calling him sir. And I don't think that was just because I'm a polite Canadian. I think it was to discombobulate him. This person certainly has never been called sir a day in his life. Um, So I was like, please don't do this, sir. And I remember I'm on my knees and I was like, I was scratching at his jeans. I remember his jeans were so thick. Like they were like a very thick, high quality jean. And I was just pleading with him, like, please don't kill me. Um, and so he initially was, it It, it worked. It, it threw him off. He was confused. And then he kind of snapped out of it. And he, he forcefully, you know, with the gun again, he said, bitch, like give me your shit or I'm going to kill you. And I, very quickly in my brain, it was like uh, what is that movie where you take the pill and your your brain just operates at a higher level, limitless. I yeah. think yeah, yeah. it was like I was in that movie because my brain went through this process extremely quickly. Where I think it was like, have you been in this situation before? What do you know? And it like tapped into my entire life experience. Just went through, and you know. I, unfortunately, that whole year, I was just traveling the world, you know, I was kind of doing this soul searching thing where I realized I had not really invested in myself, I didn't know who I was. So I gave myself the opportunity, I'd saved a bunch of money. And I said, just take the year, do whatever you want, coming to the end of that year. And I was going to be sent to an island in the Caribbean to pick up an old job that I had. Um, trying to do a promotional section with Forbes magazine. So I had my passport on me when this guy was trying to rob me. I had been traveling the entire year. This passport is my lifeline. If I lose this, I am absolutely screwed. So I I go through all, all of this and I determined very quickly in like a split second that if he took my stuff and I lost my passport... I don't know. Like, I couldn't go do that job. I was going to be late. I was going to be stuck there. It's Thanksgiving. The police aren't going to. And so I just said in my mind, no, no, you don't get to just determine that you, that I'm weaker than you and you're going to take this from me and you're going to screw up all of my plans. So I actually said, you kill me then. (laughs) Which I, you know, if I could go back and turn back time, would I have done this? No, that's insane. But he didn't like that. So he started to punch me in the head, in the face. He was pistol whipping me. He knocked me over. I hit my head, the back of my head on the pavement. And my internal voice is now screaming. Actually, before that, my internal voice is uh, coming down on myself. So I'm like, oh, you suck. You're the worst. You're letting him punch you in the face. What's wrong with you? Um, I think that is indicative of growing up as an Asian person. (laughs) But after my head hit the pavement, my inner voice was screaming, if you don't get up and fight, this man is going to kill you. You are going to die. So I got up and again, it tapped into every experience. And when I was 16, I was very much into boxing. Um, my sweet 16 birthday gift from all my girlfriends they pitched in, they got me a heavyweight punching bag. So, you know, he he started punching and at, we were going shot for shot at this point. I started fighting back and I was throwing punches and again, never had to fight off a man that is larger than me. So I'm exhausted. It feels like this is lasting forever. Um, and I'm exhausted. I'm at the end. I've got very little left in the tank. So I just put everything I had to try to save my own life and I punched him. I I was always known for having a really good right hook and I put every last bit of power and I punched him as hard as I could in the face. And after that, my, my hand kind of traveled downward and with my middle finger on that right hand, I ripped his chain off his neck.
0: Turn, so, turning the tables on the armed robber, I see.
1: I did. So he didn't actually wind up getting anything from me, um, and I robbed him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's outstanding. I mean, it, it, this whole thing sucks, but the fact that you uh, managed to, to do a double secret reverse robbery on the guy is pretty outstanding. I've, that, this is the first – I was a cop for 30 years. I'd never heard of such a thing. So that's pretty unique. So it, at some point, he, he he's had enough, and he flees. Uh, Did you ever feel like you were at risk of being shot? Did you ever, did you get the sense he was serious about using the firearm?
1: Yes. Okay. Which is also why it's so crazy that I would tell this person, like I called his bluff and it's like, what, And that's why I know this wasn't me, you know, even the calling him, sir, it's like something took over me. Mm hmm because I don't think that in in my right mind like why would I ever say those things why would I do those things where did I get the strength to physically fight off this man it's just it, i you know to look back i don't i don't know what happened and you know i was raised in a very christian household but i i swear my belief in in guardian angels there was something there that was helping me That was giving me strength. That was telling me exactly what to do. That was helping me land these shots. I I don't know. And also the snatching its called snatching someone's chain. It's the biggest disrespectful thing that you can do in the like urban hip hop community. Interesting. And the fact that I did that with just my middle finger, it wasn't even a whole fistful grab. Just my middle finger. Because that was my... That was me just saying to anyone in my whole life that has ever just taken something from me or said, you know what, you're a woman, you're Asian, whatever, you're not strong. We're going to take advantage of you. I was done. Hmm. I said, no more. I'm done. You can either kill me or we're going to battle this out right now.
0: How long before the police show up? Did you call them? Did someone else call them? Did did you call them at I all? I
1: think s- somebody else called them cuz I guess we were just on a on a very well lit main street and I guess someone heard this kerfuffle and me kind of yelling. And so someone called the cops. Um, oh actually no, sorry. They might have called the cops, but after this incident I lived very close by. And so I walked I walked home and it wasn't until the gate closed and the front door closed and my roommates were there and they were like, what they were, I was clearly very shaken up and they were like, what? And then I started bawling and it hit me. What, what I had just experienced mm. because it did, it didn't really set in until afterwards. And so they called the police. Um, and I had to keep reminding myself that, you know, I'm allowed to be here I, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, this wasn't my fault. I'm not in trouble because I think just when, you know, the police are coming, it's not like the firefighters that they're like, they're always here to save the day. You know, I just had to keep reminding myself I didn't, I'm not in trouble. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm here legally. I'm I'm okay. Um, it's just, I just had to keep reminding myself that because I knew that the cops were going to show up.
0: At this point, did you, your roommates are there. Do you, do you have visible injuries? Is it obvious you've been in a fight other than being
1: shaken up? You know, strangely I was not because they, they eventually sent three police officers and somebody was taking photographs. I, it's like I had a protective bubble. I was barely had a scratch.
0: So Mm -hmm. the police show up, they're asking you questions about what happened. Um, Do you you feel they were professional Did their job? Well, were you satisfied with the police service you got from LAPD? The
1: the one thing that did stand out to me, that was a little bit unusual and I'm sure they were just doing their job, but um, they wanted to know where it happened. And I knew exactly like between this street and this street on this side of the street, um and I said, you know, I was carrying one of those boss water bottles, the glass water bottles and I'm like it smashed when he first attacked me. Hmm. So I'm like there's a smashed water bottle on the ground that's exactly the point where it happened. And it's between this street and this street. Um and they said, mhm mhm. But we're just going to have to re-. so they they patted me down. They took my keys. They put me in the back seat of the of the police car. And I was incredibly confused because I'd certainly never been in the back back seat of a of a police car before, and I remember thinking the seat was incredibly hard, my knees are up, very high,
0: yeah, they're not built for and comfort, I,
1: yeah, and they're like, it's just protocol, you know, we just want to see where it happened, so they were going to drive me to where it happened. And so I'm, you know, I'm not handcuffed, but I'm sitting in the back of this police car and we start driving up and there's other police officers kind of where it it had happened. And I think they were maybe speaking to somebody who had seen something or maybe that had called it in. And I remembered instinctively being Canadian. I was just apologizing. Oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry that you guys have to, like, put all this work in. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And um, at this point, it's two female officers that are in the front seat. And I remember the one driving, she said, you need to stop apologizing because this man has been attacking women and you are the only one that can tell us what happened. Like the other women are petrified. They can't even talk. Mm. You are the one who can tell us what happened. We might have his DNA because you t- took ripped his chain off of his neck. Um, so what you should do is consider being like applying to the police department. Wow. And then the other, the other officer said, I would ride with you. But I remember that made me feel better. Um, I remember taking some comfort in those police officers telling me that. And then in my mind, I made myself think about this piece of shit. Like this, this guy's a piece of shit, um, I I remember envisioning him going back to, you know, uh, the little gang coven or whatever, however it is. I don't know, but going back to the place and then his boys being like, bro, what happened to your face? Like, where's your chain? And that gave me a sense of happiness. Truthfully was just considering that moment.
0: Before this incident, did you have a position on the second amendment or guns or gun control, or had it not even sort of penetrated your orbit or your consciousness?
1: It wasn't even really a blip on my radar, um, in Canada and around the world, all we do hear about is the mass shootings, um, high school shootings, all of that. Like that is the only thing that is sensationalized in the media. So I number one really had never given it a thought. Um, But if I did, I probably would have swayed more to there need to be more gun laws or something clearly wrong is happening because the only thing we ever hear about, like to us, there are shootings happening all the time, mass shootings, mass killings in the United States. It's just one after the other, because that is the only thing that is portrayed in the media. So I would say first and foremost, No stance whatsoever. It's not even part of my world. But if I were to, I probably would have veered towards anti-gun.
0: And we talked before this episode, and you told me that immediately following this incident, you did, in fact, have a very strong position on firearms and the Second Amendment. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, just, I guess my own logic was if he didn't have a gun, this terrible incident would have never happened to me. That was the only thing that, it was like I had blinders on and I was so scarred from this experience that that was the only thing I could understand. And again, in the background, in the periphery, there's all the years of um, American media sensationalizing this other gun shooting, mass shooting, this happening happening. In the church, in the school, in the theater, in the gay club, uh, shooting, shooting, shooting. Right. So to me, it was like, oh, oh, yes, yes, this is happening. Because now I have this one experience. Certainly, America is ridden with terrible situations. It's all because of the guns. We need to get rid of the guns. I am not for this. It wasn't until I, you know, kind of found myself in Hawaii when I... My first job here was actually not with a law firm at all. It was, um, you know, I've been a realtor in Canada for about 10 years. So my first job was in property management and real estate. And I met uh, my boss, attorney Mark J. Victor. And he just, he was so passionate about what he did in criminal defense. And he was so passionate about the second amendment and about peace and all of these things. And I said, huh, this guy's different. He's very vocal. And so I decided that I would go and work for this firm. And the firm is a very well-known pro second amendment. They're very well-known in Arizona and now in Hawaii. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't, I don't know about this, but I want to live in Hawaii. I now have this job. And I knew that he was different. I knew that he was different. So I think I was more open to listening and once i started listening and realizing what our firm was doing to help proliferate the second amendment and then i started doing my own research and i realized that you know the likelihood is that that criminal his firearm was not registered like it's not the same argument they're actually completely separate um the criminals are not asking for permission for guns um and that it just, I, I, I started to educate myself and I realized that I was actually wrong and it, it's hard to admit fault, but I also understand, I think, you know, the, the good thing that came out of this is there's a lot of groups out there that are anti second amendment. And I think I can really speak to those groups because I was right there, you know, sure. We fear what we don't understand. And we can come up with our own interpretation of something having very limited facts. And so I completely understand why certain groups, whether it's, you know, Moms Demand Action or this or that, I understand. And yeah. I think, oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I, I, uh, there's there some very vocal people on, quote, our side, unquote, who i think get a little too vitriolic when it comes to to referring to some of these organizations because mm-hmm. these uh, you have to understand as you were just saying these a lot of these folks are coming from a place of either being victims themselves or losing a loved one to gun violence and so i don't i don't ever question their motives i think they really believe what they're saying i think they really believe that if you just pass enough laws somehow magically you know, the problem of gun violence is going to go away. And as you so eloquently pointed out a moment ago, it's as though these criminals don't follow laws. You know? It's like
1: <laughs> I don't understand. Why criminals?
0: I, I guess <laughs> I, I would come at it from a place of trying to to reason with people and say, you know, I understand why you feel this way. I understand why you feel like guns should be restricted and AR-15s are are uh, you know, the devil's broomstick and we need to get rid of all this stuff. But you have to understand that. You can pass all the laws you want. Criminals don't follow them under any circumstances. So um, that's a really, mm-hmm. really great way for you to try to, to come at it.
1: Not only that, it's when you restrict law abiding, reasonable people and you try to take away their firearms. The only ones left are the criminals. Like it's. It just does not make sense. And, you know, being here in Hawaii and I've actually started going out and meeting with these groups, I've been on the range. I'm actually a pretty good shot. Um, I've, I've taken the training. I've gotten the affidavit right now. I'm not able to, but I start meeting people, listening to their stories. A lot of them are former, um, you know, police or military These are people that if heaven forbid, I was in a situation where something was going down, I would absolutely want them there. And I would hope that they were packing. Like (laughs) these are people that are ready to step up and, and, and be, you know, protect and, and they're making sure they're, they're able to do that. They're getting trained. They're, they're very good at what they do. And these are good people.
0: You know, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dave Grossman. He wrote uh, several books about. Uh, one's called Odd Killing. It's very well known, very popular book. I don't know if you've read it, but he he makes a great analogy in there that um, you know parents uh, hate the idea of there being an armed teacher or administrator or custodian or even uniform police officer in their kids' schools because it reminds them of the fact that there's bad people out there that are willing to visit violence on their little children. They'd rather ignore it and get rid of all the guns, you know, from that scenario. Uh, They don't mind that there are smoke detectors and fire extinguishers and fire suppression systems uh, and AEDs on the wall because all those things, they realize those things could happen and they're willing to have the tools ready, you know, to protect their kids from those things. Uh, But it's a very strange quirk of human nature that I uh, I think a lot of folks who just don't know any better, they've never been exposed to you know, to, to firearms or sort of the good side of this firearms community. Uh, they're just, they're just afraid and they kind of want to wish this stuff away. Um, in your Mm -hmm. case, uh, you know, it wasn't something really on your radar and you were forced to confront it head on. Speaking of which, um, you you went through something pretty, pretty traumatic. Have you experienced any post-traumatic stress or anything like that?
1: I didn't think so for a long time, but now that I've like Hawaii is actually the first place that I've stayed for longer than uh three to four months after that incident. I kept moving around and it wasn't until I settled down in Hawaii I felt safe for the first time in my life. I've started doing therapy where I realized I was terrified and I did not want anyone to know my location. Um so I I, I just kept moving cities, countries. I traveled nonstop because I just, I had so much PTSD from that event, but I was, I was purporting that I was, I was strong, you know, look at me. No, I'm fine. Like I robbed the guy It's cool, but I was just lying to myself.
0: A lot of folks in the show have told me that something very similar in, in as much as, Uh, right after the incident, they didn't have any sense of any sort of post-traumatic stress. And it wasn't until, uh, for example, one of our guests was a a police officer and, you know, he started getting the issues with hypervigilance where he would, you know, he would start by checking to make sure the door was locked before he went to bed and his kids were safe. And then it was checking the door three or four times and checking all the windows and checking the back door twice. And then, waking up thinking there must be something going on. And it's just sort of progresses. So a lot, a lot of times the, the post-traumatic issues don't present themselves as post-traumatic stress immediately or right away. And it takes time. And you could be exhibiting behaviors like moving from place to place to place for a while without realizing that's what's, that's the issue, that that's what's going on. So at what point did you Absolutely. realize I'm running from something? At what point did it, was there a moment where it dawned on you? Hey, I'm, I need to figure out what I'm running from.
1: Um, I think it was after being in Hawaii and realizing that I had not stopped moving for, I guess it's almost seven years now, and that I was exhausted from constantly living out of a suitcase. Just, you know, it was impossible for me to have a relationship because usually I would start to like meet someone or solidify, you know, meet someone that I liked and it would start to build up and say, Oh shoot, I'm moving to Colombia," or like, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to Africa or just something. It was, it was impossible. And I had no idea that it was because I did not feel safe. And to this day, I still will not even sit in a restaurant with my back to the door. Like I, I I do have this hypervigilance no matter what, because my safety at the end of the day is my responsibility and I remember shortly, maybe within the first year after the incident, I have uh, my friend's father and he's a Vietnam War vet. He's from um, Rochester, New York. Such a nice man. This is like my honorary white dad. <laughs> and he, <laughs> he said to me and he was like, sweetie, you have PTSD. and I was like, I don't. I that's sweet of you, but like, I'm good. Like I fought the guy, like I'm the victor. I'm totally fine. And he just, he just like stopped me and like looked at me. He's like, I know PTSD. I fought in Vietnam. He's like, you have PTSD. And even still I did not listen to it. I did not accept it. I did not believe it. And it wasn't until, you know, in Hawaii I do feel safe for the most part. It's a very peaceful place. I back onto hundreds of hectares of, of just waterfalls and green land. And I hear birds, like I feel at peace. And it's only when you can come to feeling safe and secure and peaceful that you can start to dig up, you know, what was actually going on. Oh, wow. I felt incredibly unsafe. And yes, I was running I think you can't do that if you're still in that place of, of, um, the stress and the fear and the not feeling safe. I think you have to reach a point where, you know, you feel protected in order to really come to terms with how you were feeling at that time.
0: You know, I think it's worth mentioning that, that I I get the sense now, especially after doing this show for a while that there is a stigma around PTSD. I don't think that the stigma is that you have it or don't have it. I think what's stigmatized is, uh, coming forward and saying, yeah, I'm suffering from this because of fill in the blank experience. Because we look at someone who was in Fallujah, uh, you know, in in a fiery battle and lost his best friends, you know, in horrible ways right in front of him. That guy's got PTSD. You know what? I just got mugged, you know, or I just had a terrible car accident or, I was just, you know, um, I was a victim of a, of a home invasion or whatever the case may be and feel like, well, we don't, you know, I don't really rate having PTSD because what I went through doesn't compare. And I want, if you're listening to this, I want you to know that that's baloney. Uh, and you can just, Mm -hmm. you could just change your mind about that because the, uh, the idea of PTSD having to be some particularly eventful thing, I disagree completely. Uh, I still have PTSD from a a very non-serious car accident. When I was a kid, my dad and I are going down the Jersey turnpike. We go across a bridge, hit some ice. And the next thing you know, the car is spinning out of control into a ditch. Now I didn't even get hurt, you know, in that incident. But to this day at night in the rain or the snow, if I'm driving, I'm white knuckling it. And that was mm. 40, you know, 44, 43 years ago. Uh, I was robbed at gunpoint in high school. I managed a movie theater, uh, And there's still things to this day that will trigger a response to that, you know, and never mind 30 years of law enforcement. There's plenty of stuff, (laughs) plenty of stuff packed into that. But Mm. I say that to say this, if you have gone through a thing, don't ever compare yourself to anyone else or what their experience was. If you feel like you have some post-traumatic stress or anything like that related to an incident, don't be afraid to reach out for help. You know, don't don't travel all over the world, move place to place like Simone here did because she didn't want to <laughs> acknowledge that that was a thing and i'm sure if you can go back you know in time and redo all of this you might think to yourself well maybe i should you know i should address this head on a little bit sooner or maybe i'm wrong
1: mm. no you're absolutely right and i think i don't know how it is in other cultures but in the asian community admitting that you have ptsd or anything around your mental health it's it's the boogeyman it doesn't even exist and it makes you weak and it's just so stigmatized that we need to have these conversations you know admitting to something like that and getting help and speaking to someone allowing others to help you right speaking to a therapist any of these things that to me shows far more strength than denying that that there's anything wrong
0: Was there anything else you wanted to to discuss or talk about that I may not have brought up before we part ways?
1: There's an organization called the DC Project, uh, which is for women to rally together. It's a women's rights organization that gun rights are women's rights. Um, I have a very smart person on the big island of Hawaii. uh, And he's actually the one that said, the only thing to level the playing field between a woman and a man two, three times her size is a firearm. Mm. And it didn't really set in until later um, that I somehow got connected to the DC project. And this is run by, um, Diana Mueller, who is like a super like three gun champion, like Tulsa police officer for 22 years. She's super badass. love her. And then Cheryl Todd. So they wanted me on their podcast and they think that my story is really important. Um, they actually didn't have a dc project chapter in hawaii and so i was like oh great i can't wait to like go to these meetings i know some women that i want to get involved and they were like oh well that's one of the few states that doesn't have one mm. so i said okay this is ridiculous i will do it like i don't even have a right because i'm on a i'm on a temporary work visa right now so i'm not allowed to own a firearm even though what happened to me I did experience and I live alone in a house that backs onto a hundreds of acres of land where there is certainly, I've seen a tent in the forest. Like there is somebody living there, but I'm not allowed to protect myself in my own home. Right. That's fine. I still said, if this doesn't exist here and no one will step up, I will, I will start it. I will be the chapter lead until someone, and then they said, no, we found some ladies. So I'm still involved in this. And I think it's important because women, especially in some areas, especially Hawaii, they only go if their husbands or their boyfriends, like their gun guys, they'll go out, but they actually say there's not a big community. There's not a lot of support for women. And I think it's important to have that camaraderie and like make it a fun thing. Hey guys, Saturday, we're going to go to the range. Let's have a competition. Who's the best shot? Like we need to kind of normalize and make these things fun to get more women into it. Um, that's just my personal belief. So I I love being a part of the DC project here in Hawaii and people ask like, but you don't even have that right. (laughs) And for me, I think it's even more important to stand up for rights and freedoms when it doesn't directly affect you. Um, That's just my personal take. I think it does indirectly affect me because I do live in the United States right now. Um, But no matter what, wherever you are in the world, if America is to lose their rights and freedoms, that does affect every other country in the world. Mm, That is setting the precedent I don't think people realize that. We think that we're, oh, we're in our bubble and we're over here in Asia or we're here in Africa, we're here in the Caribbean. I'm sorry. If you understand how the world works, it sets a new benchmark and precedent. So we have to support each other, even when it doesn't directly af- affect us, it does indirectly affect us. So that's why I'm very happy, very vocal. I will share my story with whoever wants to hear it. I'm going to be at the second amendment rally in Arizona next month, speaking on stage, because that's how much I believe that this work is especially important when I don't, it doesn't direct like this is not for me.
0: Andrew Clavin, one of my favorite commentators likes to say there isn't a a free man or woman on earth that doesn't owe some uh, measure of that freedom to the United States and its military and its foreign policy over the years. And I think you're spot on that if this place, which Reagan called the last best hope for mankind on Earth, uh, if if we if our gun rights uh, get severely diminished or they go away, it makes a difference. Because what kind of government are we going to have when the government has zero fear of its own people? Uh, how long can we maintain a system like we have uh, without the Second Amendment? And I would say not even one generation uh, before it's gone. Tell the people uh, Mm -hmm. where and when the rally is in Arizona.
1: Yes, it's February 19th at the Phoenix Capitol building.
0: All right. And you'll be speaking at that?
1: Yes, sir, I will.
0: Very good. This should come out before that. So hopefully people can get that information and run with it. And if somebody wants to find your comedy, uh, is there somewhere they could find Mm. that, A YouTube or a podcast or something?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of things floating around, but I'd say the best bet would be to Google my name, Simone Park, S-I-M-M-O-N-E, P-A-R-K, like a walk in the park. Um, but if they wanted to go to YouTube or on social media, usually Instagram is the one that I use. That's at Spark the Power. So S-Park is my first initial last name. Ah, I see what you did there. Very clever. Power.
0: Yeah, <laughs> nicely done. Well, Simone, it's been an absolute delight talking to you, and uh, I hope somehow, some way, you get to stay in the United States for the rest of your life because we need more more people like you. Thank you so much for coming on and telling your story.
1: Thank you for having me,
0: my dear. Okay, gang, we're back again with our good friend Stephen Gutowski. This segment is called the Gutowski Files, and it stars Stephen Gutowski. I said Gutowski three times just now. Stephen Gutowski, how are you, sir?
2: I'm doing well. glad to be the star of this uh, segment. Well, he is the
0: founder of the reload.com and the host of the weekly Reload podcast, which is one of my favorites. Also, find him on YouTube as well. He, The guy is a man of many parts. He's all over the media spectrum. He, You may say he's the king of all media uh, of, <laughs> up and coming in, in Loof.
2: Yeah, my my bank account doesn't say that. Yet, well, but, I mean, yeah. it's,
0: it's going to happen. So this, <laughs> this week, you, sir, are fresh off of uh, a SHOT show. Unfortunately, Jake couldn't make it. He wasn't feeling yeah. so hot, but you were able to make it to SHOT Show. And there's an article on TheReload.com, and the opening line is it's right up there with Call Me Ishmael, uh, best of times, worst <laughs> of times. It, it opens with the line, SHOT Show During COVID, Guns, Porn, and Concrete. Please explain this to us, Stephen.
2: Yes. Well, that, those are the industries that usually descend on Las Vegas during the third week of January. Uh, there's SHOT Show, which is the gun industry's trade show. There's the World of Concrete, which is the concrete industry's trade show. Hmm. And then there's uh, the AVN trade show, which is the adult video uh, industries trade show. Oddly A- enough, uh, the adult performers were the ones who uh, decided to pull out this year. They did not attend. They canceled their um they canceled their trade show the concrete and guns where they still went on though well
0: i'll tell you uh I, I, you know i didn't get to get to shot show for for personal reasons this year i'm bummed about that but i tell you i might have been lured away from the boring you know convention full of guns and gun related equipment to go to the world of concrete that sounds very interesting
2: actually is really cool <laughs> is it okay yeah, because they have like all kinds of big, uh, you know, the big equipment out in the parking lot at the, the Vegas Convention Center because SHOT shows at uh, what used to be called the Sands. Now it's called the Venetian uh, Expo Center. And, uh, you know, it takes up this massive uh, space uh, and it actually expanded this year. It's the first year they they added on the Caesars Forum Uh, in addition to the venetian expo and so you know takes up this huge space and so across town where they have those new like tesla tunnel thing that's going on uh at the las vegas convention center that's where they do the world of concrete and they have in the parking lot these you know displays of all the big heavy equipment that people use to pour concrete it's it's pretty cool
0: Okay, that sounds like fun. I mean, you know, as a, as a little boy, I did play with construction equipment. I had an uncle who was an excavator, so yeah, I can see what that would be pretty, pretty interesting. So, talk to us about Shot Show itself. Um, you've been before; this is not your first mm-hmm. time. And so, how yeah. would, how did this compare to other years? How was the attendance? How were the COVID protocols? Did that get in the way of anything? Tell us about that.
2: Uh, you know, it was pretty. It was pretty good attendance, I would say, given uh, the circumstances. The first one since the pandemic began because shot show takes place in january so they actually had shot show in 2020 uh, it was like one of the last big events that happened because uh, the pandemic didn't really shut things down until march so uh, there were 40,000 plus people who attended at some point from what nssf told me the you know the national shooting sports foundation which runs shot show and so that's that's pretty good attendance. You know, it wasn't yeah, it was down from pre-pandemic levels, but not to the point where you might be like, Oh my gosh, this is gonna fail out, you know, no one's gonna do this anymore. Uh and I think their attendance was actually better than the Consumer Electronics show, which was a CES, which happened the the week before. So You know, it was, uh, and they had, you know, mandatory masks um, indoors. Obviously, it's a huge crowd of people indoors. That was a state mandate, so it wasn't really MSSF-directed. But, uh, you know, it was enforced relatively strictly, not, you know, it wasn't crazy. They weren't kicking you out necessarily if you took your mask down for a moment. But, um, you know, I'm, and look... any of these big events, I think for most people attending them, you're going to have some level of anxiety that you didn't have before the pandemic, because there's a, <clears throat> there's a, a nickname for, you know, viruses that get passed around at shot show, just like there are for pretty much every convention that sure. I've ever heard of. Yeah. There's a, a, it's called shot show crud is what people, you know, frame, whatever, uh, sickness is going around at each shot show. They just It's just a generic catch-all term. But obviously this year, it's very likely that if you were catching shot show crud, it was going to be COVID. And, uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of anxiety that comes along with that, trying to, <clears throat> especially just operating in our modern world and trying to figure out what's safe and not safe even still this far in. Uh, you know, okay, my risks aren't that high for a severe case if I'm vaccinated or whatever, the masking helps reduce yeah, the right. risk, but there's still some, you know, you gotta, it's sort of a personal thing. You got to figure out what you're comfortable with. And uh, I mean, obviously a lot of people were comfortable with, with going, you had a number of big companies decide that the risk was too high. Um, you know, Ruger and Springfield and, and uh, Beretta and some of, some of these other big brands didn't go, but for the most part, it was it was a pretty full show. So,
0: was there anything in particular, any new product or anything like that that stood out that you were interested in? Uh, that you know that you'd want to tell us about?
2: Yeah, there were a couple of things. I mean, although I, I will say that I think this whole atmosphere did have an effect overall. On, I mean, not just the pandemic, but also the the running shortages that we've seen throughout the industry in terms of supply means that there really wasn't as much of like a trend that you could see in the new offerings as there usually are most years you go and you can see, okay, here's the new thing that everybody's doing. Uh, A couple of years ago was everyone was introducing 10 millimeter, you know, handguns. Everybody had a new 10 millimeter handgun this year. You didn't see as much of that. There's a new uh, round that people are sort of excited about, which is a 30 super carry, which is sort of a, somewhere between 380 and nine millimeter and is a lot of people think is sort of a better modern alternative to nine millimeter i guess you get a few more rounds obviously there's plenty to debate just like there always is with what caliber is best as you <laughs> as right. active self-protection uh, knows very well yes. that is a long-running debate but it, so there's now going to be a new entrant into that uh race but um outside of that you know the most interesting things that i came across where uh, the Lago Alien, which is uh, a it's a four thousand dollar pistol. So it's not exactly like your everyman gun that's going to change the industry, but right. it is something that uh, uses a different configuration than most handguns that are on the market these days. Most handguns are, you know, tilting barrel, Browning action, uh, semi-automatic striker-fired handguns with polymer lowers, uh, polymer frames, and which is a great design. You know, that's the classic sort of Glock design that everyone's using now. But the Laugo uses, uh, you know, stationary barrel. The top strap of the slide doesn't reciprocate when you fire it. It uses a like a gas blow. It uses a gas system to cycle instead of a recoil. So it's it's uh, you know a unique combination. It's, none of these technologies are brand new, but they're put together in a way that, you know, basically it reduces muzzle flip, so you can stay on target uh, a lot better, perhaps. Uh, you know, or at least you can stay on target better. A lot better is maybe a subjective measure, but right. I did notice it when I was firing. You could hit those follow-up shots faster uh, in my experience. And, you know, I'm not a competitive shooter or anything, but, but yeah, so that was one of the big ones. Uh, and and there, I mean, there's a lot, but uh, Rock Island introduced their own, um, their own handgun design, which is interesting to see, you know, Rock Island Army makes these lower end 1911s, and now you're seeing them start to introduce their own striker fire, um, semi-automatic design, which sort of sort of taking the Kimber route, going from being really well known as a, a 1911 maker and starting to do their own designs, but at a much lower, you know, uh, price point than what Kimber does. And uh, so you know it, there were there were a number of things like that. Uh, um, I shot the Tavor um, bullpup 12 gauge shotgun oh, yeah. thing that they make. Yeah, it's, I guess it's not brand new. I think it came out maybe a year or two ago, but it's the first time I'd shot it. And that th- <laughs> that thing kicks like a mule. That was very unexpected when I went and fired that gun. But it has a really fascinating uh, mechanism. It's not a pump action. I, I don't know. If it's semi-automatic, but you got a. It has like a three uh, tube magazine, hmm. and to load the next round. You know, you load in each of those magazines, and then to load the after you fire round, you uh, flip that magazine, you twist it, and it loads the next round in, and then you're ready to fire. It's an interesting design. Uh, there's a lot of that kind of stuff of like this is this is different and interesting.
0: I think you told me you, you bumped into some of the active self protection crew you were out there as well.
2: That's right. Yeah, Neil and and John and uh, a whole bunch of people were were out uh as well as I, I saw them over by the mantis x uh booth where they had some interesting new stuff uh, there was like blackbeard i think training mm-hmm. yep. device for the ar that lets you uh use a laser system for dry is, fire practice that, that resets yeah, it's really itself
0: cool. rare yeah
2: cool so you don't have to rack the you know the bolt carry group every time you want to fire another round it's interesting because there's like this stuff that I would classify as smart guns technology, right? Like that Manus X system mm-hmm. or even the, the little uh, computer that you strap to your gun that tells you that Manus X makes that tells you how to, you know, how you're shooting and how to improve your right. your shots. Um, you know, that's smart technology on a gun. And then Magpul had a, a new optic mounting system that does sort of a lot of the video game kind of stuff that, that you've seen over the years in or movie stuff like uh, it keeps track of how many rounds are left in your magazine and displays that on your optic. It gives you a range finder that's displayed in your, it's like a heads up display in your, in your optic. Yeah. So there's, there's like this really fascinating technological developments out there on guns. But obviously what most people think of when you say smart gun is uh, the kind of guns that have locks integrated into them that use biometrics or ring or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and that was actually also at Shot Show. There's uh, new companies developing that technology. That's much more politically sort of um, controversial because of uh, a lot of gun control activists want to mandate those sorts of devices as the only option for people, and they have a lot of reliability issues, as you might imagine, with uh, integrating smart locks into the gun itself. Um, But I did stop by the booth for a company called Smart Guns with a Z, where they're making a. a gun that has an integrated lock that relies on RFID reader okay um, and a ring that gets paired with it and so the, they you know wasn't functional and I wasn't able to manip- they didn't let me manipulate it but I did talk to the founder and we actually have a piece of the reload about that too
0: very cool listen folks if you are lamenting the lack of down the middle sane sober reporting on the second amendment in the gun industry the NRA and all things guns please go over to the reload.com carefully consider getting a membership there Stephen relies on his uh, his members only for income so that's how he does his reporting he's beholden to no one and uh, we'd appreciate you over to check that out and consider becoming a member Stephen thanks for be- being on this week appreciate it
2: hey, thanks for having me